Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released, and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach small products to your backpack, roller, or tote. It is very important to have the right luggage and the right bag when you are traveling. There's no doubt about that. We are now teaming up with DB for an exclusive offer to our listeners of 10% off when you purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in the show notes. DB, it's time to move on. It's time to get going. That is 10% off using the code POD10 at our link. That is DB, it's time to move on and it's time to get going. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Johnson on your back. It was like a tap just went on and blood just pissed out of the head of Alvin Leon Brito. Seconds remaining for a great survival story. She's survived. Double hammer fist. Double hammer fist. Double hammer fist from this animal. We told you. Colton knows how to knock people. The fire truck out. That's how Ribs knocks people out. Again, Sunos did it again. You bloody ripper, Don Julio. You crazy, crazy out moisture, seals in freshness. Good night, Irene. Thank your mother for the rabbits. Oh, oh it's a big Here comes the finish. She's done it. She's done it. Oh, it's a big It's good night, freaking Irene. He slammed him unconscious. He slammed him onto the astral plane. 
Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz. With me today is a, a very special guest. He is a legendary announcer, commentator, writer, journalist. You name it, he's done it all. He's worked for Dream. He's worked for One. He's worked for everyone. He is the voice, Michael Chavello. Michael, welcome to the two-man power trip. G'day, John. Great to be on here with you, mate. Thank you very much. So what's going on? What have you been up to? I know obviously you're over there in Singapore, but what's what's going on? Yeah, here in Singapore, just uh, finishing up a one-week hotel quarantine that I'm out and about, and we have back-to-back uh, one championship shows every two weeks leading until the end of the year, so I'm a busy man. Oh, man, it's a big, busy schedule for sure, and uh, that's awesome that you're obviously traveling the world, but one is getting more popular, it seems like. You know, we, uh, we've we done so many countries, and at the moment, unfortunately, a lot of those countries are still locked down, but usually we're doing, you know, uh, Philippines, Indonesia, China, Thailand, Myanmar, uh, we're all over the place, but Singapore's the only one operating at the moment, and uh, we're just uh, doing some pretty big shows coming up over the next few months. With one, obviously, it was on TNT as well. So, I mean, that's a pretty groundbreaking thing because you know, Bellator obviously is on TV and UFC, but one breaking through is great. It was big for us, you know, during the whole season throughout April on, on the one on TNT series. Uh, we did four shows there and uh, it was exciting, you know, being on on uh, on a good time slot and uh, following AEW. And because of, you know, of course, they're the number one uh, show on cable at the moment, which is great to see that uh, wrestling's got that lofty position once again. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a fun show showcasing what one championship can do for a very large American audience. Really cool to see like that kind of expansion and that kind of relationship with like Bleach Report and TNT and B&I. I mean, that's really cool. Did you think that like the fights lived up to the hype? Do you think that everyone was like, uh, you know, basically wanting to see the next one? It's always difficult with, um, you know, with events because you never know what you'll get. Some of the one on TNT series, I think uh, some of the fights fell short from what we expected as fans. And some of them lived up to and beyond the expectation. I mean, no one will ever forget uh, DJ Demetrius Johnson getting beaten by Adriana Moraes. No one will ever forget seeing Eddie Alvarez, you know, breaking down and, and crying and that speech that he gave to the camera after he was disqualified against Yuri um, Lapikas. But then we had some unfortunate ones like the Rugrug fight where, you know, he looked like he just didn't want to be there, unfortunately. Uh, Onglan Sung getting beaten and losing his world title was unfortunate. So it was, it was a mix, but I think the highlights certainly outweighed the, uh, the lesser fights that were less dramatic. See, that's the thing. Sometimes people go in knowing Demetrius Johnson, knowing Eddie Alvarez, and it's like, okay, you know, like the American fans like, oh, but they lost. But also it's kind of putting over the other guys, too. I mean, it's like it's just a tremendous win for the other guys as well. It really is. And, you know, for those of us that know one championship and have been around and have seen these athletes compete and know what they're capable of, it really wasn't a surprise. Um, I think I tipped that Adriana Moraes would beat Demetrius Johnson just because I knew he was bigger. I knew that he was more comfortable with the rule set, knew how to exploit it to his fullest advantage. And he's just super smart, highly intelligent and always fully prepared. Not to say that DJ isn't, of course, but I just thought Moraes as the defending champion would have the edge over him and, and it proved that way. 
I love that too with MMA. You don't quite know. Everyone thinks like, okay, UFC is the best fighters. Not necessarily the case. Demetrius Johnson dominated UFC. Comes to one, you know, obviously had a big problem with with Hadrian and and got wiped out. So it's funny to think like, okay, maybe the best fighters in the world aren't over in the UFC. I mean, they could be anywhere. Well, the thing is that all the guys that have come from UFC so far have had a very tough time of it. I mean, Sage Northcutt came in went up against a guy who hardly does mixed martial arts and got his jaw broken in like four places in, in you know, a matter of seconds. Eddie Alvarez came in and got beaten straight away by a guy who was you know, unknown to the rest of the world, Timothy Nastuka, who blasted him. Okami's been beaten. Uh, Sexyama's been beaten. Demetrius Johnson's been beaten and knocked out. So, you know, guys that are coming to one from the UFC and fans thinking it may be a pushover – are experiencing something completely different. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, the striking as well. And the guys, especially throughout Asia, is just on such a different level to what it is to the to the guys that are coming from the UFC. Uh, the ground game may not be for everybody, but the striking certainly is. What's like the like the big fight coming up for one? Is there a big one coming up or a couple of big ones, whether it be Muay Thai or whether it be MMA? Well, it's interesting you should uh, mention that, John, because it's going to be a little bit of both. On December 5, Demetrius Johnson will take on Rod Tung. For those who don't know Rod Tung, he's the best Muay Thai fighter on the planet right now, undefeated in one, got the biggest win streak of all time in one. He will take on Demetrius Johnson, who you know is the all-time greatest in mixed martial arts, in a super match of rotating rules. So the first round will be three minutes of Muay Thai, Second round will be three minutes of mixed martial arts. Third round Muay Thai, fourth round mixed martial arts. That will be on December 5, and our biggest show ever, um, celebrating 10 years of one championship. And the first time we've ever had a special rules match. The greatest in MMA is going to take on the greatest on the planet in Muay Thai. It's going to be exceptional. Oh, that is awesome. I love the rotating rules. I mean, that's something different and something unique. I know uh, years ago, obviously, Dynamite did that, or a Dream with Dynamite in 2010. They kind of had that with the Nagashima-Aoki fight, but this is something unique and different, and two guys, whew, man, top of their games. Well, yeah, we did have a back at Dynamite. I remember commentating that one. I think I lost a bet on that one to Frank Trigg, and I think as a result, if I remember, <laughs> I had to wear makeup or a wig or something like that, but the difference is that um, you know, Aoki and Giannotsu were, were great athletes, but Rod Tang and, and DJ are considered two all-time greats. I mean, most people have Demetrius Johnson top three, if not number one, pound for pound all-time mixed martial arts, and most people would be foolhardy not to have Rod Tang top three currently and for the past couple of years in the Muay Thai striking world. So what's unique is that we've got two of the very, very best on the planet right now mixing it up in different sports, in different rules on the one super match. I love that. I mean, that's so cool, so different. You probably won't see that anywhere else either, which is awesome. I love that one has, okay, you know, Rug Tang might be the best Muay Thai. Giorgio Petrosian might be the best kickboxer. You know what I mean? It, it, it's all these guys from all these different uh, martial arts, and, and they're t- top of their game. I mean, Giorgio, geez, I think he's 102 or something. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, Giorgio is no doubt the best kickboxer in history, and you better believe that I've, I've seen them all. And there's no one that comes close to being described as a perfect kickboxer as much as Giorgio Petrosian. But you're right, John, you know, one championship is signing all the top talent they can. I mean, we've got um, Bucheka, who's who's fighting, who's a BJJ great, Gordon Ryan, who's signed with us. 
arguably the greatest BJJ exponent of all time. You know, got the greatest kickboxers, the greatest Muay Thai fighters, um, greats like Demetrius Johnson, as I said, in mixed martial arts and others. So, and the roster is building. You know, every day we are signing new guys. The roster is building, and really the the sky is the limit. And I think we get we're going to even shatter that sky and and go even higher. Yeah, it's crazy. I think the last time Giorgio lost was like. Eight years ago, I remember watching that fight. It was glory. Somehow Andy Risty pulled a big upset. But to think that he hasn't lost since then, and even before that, he only lost once. is Oh, my God, what insane how good he is. Yeah, you're right. It was to Andy Risty, and there was some controversy regarding that result. Um, I won't go into that, but, you know, it was a shock for a lot of people, and Giorgio hasn't lost since, hasn't looked like losing since, and I just don't think anyone can touch him. I mean, he's fighting again on October 15. Um, yeah, it's October 15 and the main event of an all-kickboxing card called One First Strike, and he's fighting Superbon for the featherweight kickboxing world title, but I, I even can't see the great Superbon rattling Giorgio Petrosian. What do you think about, one, how they do MMA, kickboxing, Muay Thai? I mean, they spread it around with all different sports. Do you think that's unique and special to them, and that's why it's so successful? I think it's part of the recipe of success. Uh, it just offers the viewers, uh, you know, so many uh, different aspects of martial arts action to watch. You can watch mixed martial arts, and then suddenly there's a kickboxing fight, which is three by three minute rounds, and then suddenly there's a Muay Thai fight in which we use four ounce gloves, knees, elbows, all the good stuff is in there. So we're trying to promote as much action and variety as we possibly can. We've also had boxing on our previous cards. You know, in 2018, we had a world title boxing fight in Bangkok for a WBC world title uh, with Sisaket on the card, who was pound for pound, um, you know, top three in the world at the time, and he beat Iran Diaz. So as long as we have top guys competing in whatever form of martial combat it is, uh, I think we're, we're pretty happy to do it. Now, you mentioned... Frank Trigg before, and obviously that's part of Dream and Dynamite and announcing. The real reason why I kind of had John today, obviously want to talk MMA and want to talk your announcing, but also a writer and wrote a great book, The 100 Years of Sports Commentary, The Commentators. Tell us about the new book. Thank you, John. The new book just came out a couple of weeks ago, The Commentators. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted to write a book about commentary because besides being a commentator myself, I'm a fan of of sports commentary. I'm the type of guy, John, who will watch a sport I'm not even interested in just to listen to the commentators and see how they do their jobs. I'll drive around in my car listening to horse racing on the radio. I know nothing about horse racing. I do not bet on horse racing, but I like listening to horse racing callers because I think that their art is so incredibly difficult that I, I appreciate it. So when I was researching this book, I actually stumbled across the fact that Sports commentary as a profession was born in April 1921, 100 years ago, when a guy called, a guy called Florent Gibson, a newspaper journalist for the Pittsburgh Post, commentated a featherweight boxing match between Johnny Dundee and Johnny Ray for KDKA uh, Radio out of, out of Pittsburgh. And uh, so the, the profession was born, and I think that ever since, sports commentary has become the soundtrack of our lives, and the book pays tribute to all the great commentators that have done all the greatest sports events over the years and goes behind those epic sports moments like Al Michaels and the Miracle on Ice or Vin Scully commentating Sandy Koufax's perfect innings. Um, there's Super Bowls in there. There's golf in there. There's there's Formula One in there. There's, you know, 
baseball, basketball, all the sports you can think of are in there and the commentary is behind them. It's funny you say that because sometimes I'll watch a really bad college football game, but Gus Johnson is on the call. So I'm like, nope, I'm sticking with this one because he can make it sound so much better and it's so much fun listening to him and the enthusiasm oh, stuff. So, yeah. You know, Gus is definitely in the book screaming Gus Johnson, the slipper still fits and, and all that he does. And, um, you know, again, it's, 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 it's commentators from all over the world. So quite a few American commentators. Uh, a lot of English, UK commentators, some Australians, some New Zealanders. Uh, we've got commentators in there from Norway, from Italy, from the Netherlands, all over the place. Some of the contributors to the book as well are names that Americans will be familiar with, like Vin Scully, you know, probably the greatest sports announcer of all time. Well, Vin's a contributor to the book. Uh, Tim Neverett, who's the current voice of the LA Dodgers, the World Series winners. I'm very excited for everybody to have a read. Man, it's so awesome like to go through because I think a lot of people know some of the commentators, but I mean you touch on all of them. It's crazy how many different commentators well, are in the book. Here's another one for your audience. Another one for your audience. I forgot to mention, I shouldn't have, silly me. Jim Ross, WWE Hall of Famer, is a contributor to the book. Um and Jim Ross's contribution is phenomenal to hear what he says um going behind the scenes of some of his classic commentaries like mankind versus undertaker uh and just even talking to jr about commentating during the covid pandemic and what he went through commentating aew i mean you just got to read it for jr alone Yes, I was going to mention it. it. Obviously, if you talk about great sports commentators, he's definitely one of the best. And somehow getting more famous, more popular because of the memes and the gifts or whatever you call it, where basically his soundtrack is on the back. And, you know, somebody could fall off the back of a truck or something, and it's him and, and Lawler making the call like, oh, my God, he's broken in half or something. It's just funny well, how that goes. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the perfect word, John. You said the word soundtrack. I mean, Jim, the soundtrack of my youth, because I was a huge wrestling nut, and I am still a, a wrestling fan, was Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse the Body Ventura and Vince McMahon on commentary. That was the soundtrack of my early years when I fell in love with pro wrestling. But you move later on, you move to, to people who are now, you know, in their 30s, in their 20s, and for them, the voice they grew up with, the soundtrack they grew up with was JR, Jim Ross. So it's, it's a generational thing as well. And uh, like I said, I think people are going to get a real kick out of reading what JR has to say in the book. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's funny, I was just, uh, I did a show last week. It was basically, um, who's the best commentating duo? And we're talking about wrestling, of course. And I said Gorilla and Heenan. And a buddy of mine was saying they love Jesse and Vince together. It's funny, like how you can almost like think of certain guys like, I love that combo. Oh, I love JR and Lawler. All like the announced duos in wrestling. So good back then. It's, yeah, it's, it's so. Uh, everyone has a different opinion. I loved Vince McMahon together with um, uh, Bobby Heenan. I thought that, that they were a good... Uh, sorry, Vince McMahon with Jesse the Body. I thought they were a very good tandem on Saturday Night Main Event. I thought they suited Saturday Night Main Event particularly well. I liked the way how you know Vince was always playing the straight guy and Jesse was always the, the heel commentator. They riffed off each other very nicely. Same too with Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse. Same too Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan. Bobby obviously brought a lot more comedy to the role, whereas Jesse Ventura brought a lot more expertise and actual wrestling analysis. So it all depends on what you like. And you go back before that, you had great commentators like Gordon Soley. And, uh, you know, I like to listen to Tony Schiavone and Mike Tanay also on, on the old WCW Nitro shows. 
and um, obviously you can't go past Jerry Lawler and, and JR, and now you've got JR with Shivani on AEW. I think wrestling is all about personality and character, and there's been so many great tandems in wrestling commentary throughout history, and again, I'm, I'm glad to be able to present some of those to a mainstream audience in, in the book. So true. I loved uh, Shivani. I love Tanae. Dusty was great when you throw Dusty in the mix, too. I mean, who man, so many good announcements. Kind of spoiled growing up a bit. I know, obviously, J.R. and Tony are still doing it, but, man, that was like the, the peak of great wrestling announcing to me. It, it, you know, it really was. And I still like to go back and watch the old stuff, too. Sometimes I'll go back and watch Nitro. But at the moment, you know, I've been doing so much quarantine because of travel and the quarantine restrictions in hotels and, and whatnot. I've got the WWE Network and I'm going through um, Saturday Night Main Event from the start. I'm already like, uh, I think, three years in at the moment. And it just brings back my childhood and hearing Vince and, and Jesse Ventura on there is just such a wonderful time machine. It's my own personal DeLorean taking me back to the late 80s, early 90s when, when I was in the thick of my wrestling era. And uh, it, it's beautiful to listen to and to watch. To me, I love going back and watching because just people always go, oh, it doesn't hold up or something doesn't hold up. But then I go back and watch. I'm like, no, it's actually better. It actually holds up just fine. And I think it might be better than uh, than ever in some cases. I agree. I think it holds up particularly well. I mean, that's what you're always scared of, right? And the interesting thing, though, is, John, we look at that from our perspective of being, you know, older people who grew up with that when that permeated our imaginations. If I show the old wrestling stuff that I liked, if I show WrestleManias, uh, let's say, one through seven to my seven-year-old son who loves wrestling, he won't like it. He says, Daddy, it looks too old. It's too old. He'd rather watch the current stuff. So we watched SummerSlam together recently. Um, yeah, we watched WrestleManias. We watched the pay-per-views, the big ones when they come about, and he loves that. I enjoy watching it with him. I don't know if necessarily I would enjoy watching it as much on my own right now, but I can still go back to those old WrestleMania, SummerSlams, you know, Rumbles, Saturday Night Main Events, etc., and watch those all the time, almost ad nauseum, and not get bored of them. Totally, totally agree, hundred uh, percent. It is funny to like go back and like, okay, is, is it still as good? Damn, it still is. Um, is, is Hogan just as good as I remember him? Damn, he is. He's even better. Yeah, it just it was the perfect thing that back there. They called the golden era, the golden age. It definitely was. I think that um, there's a Facebook page that I'm on called WWF the Federation Years, and I think their terminology on that Facebook page is great because they call it the Federation Years, and it seems to have been you know separating when it was WWF to when it became WWE, and I quite like that. So I sort of group it myself these days as yeah, I'm. You know, I'm still a huge fan, fanboy of the, the Federation years. Um, but like I said, the, the younger audience today, hard to get them into it. But I suppose that, okay, we'll look at it this way. My seven-year-old, who was born in 2014, I'm trying to show him something from, let's say, 1990, which would have been the equivalent of me in 1990 watching something from 1955, <laughs> <laughs> right, I would have thought at that time that would be terribly old and boring and horrible to watch myself. So I can understand where he's coming from. It's funny. I sometimes my wife hates it, but sometimes I'll put on some like WrestleMania three or something for my son, and he just loves Hulk. He gets like excited for Hulk, but he hated Andre the Giant. A little bit scared of Andre the Giant. He absolutely hated him, and he thought Hulk lost. 
at WrestleMania 3 at the beginning of the match. I said, no, it's not over yet. But it's just funny, like, to think, like, yeah. that younger generation, you try to get them into what you like, you know? It's funny, because, you know, going through the old Saturday Night Main events, and they tried to keep milking that storyline of Andre pinning Hogan after a few seconds with that failed, um, you know, slam attempt. Uh, so it's, it's great talking about that. And uh, I remember being afraid myself. My, my nightmares were King Kong Bundy. I was afraid at night that King Kong Bundy was coming to get me. And, uh, you know, it's funny, when I interviewed Hulk Hogan many years ago, I said to him, mate, I was I was terrified of Bundy. And he goes, I don't blame you. He goes, Out of all the big men that Hogan wrestled against, Yokozuna, Bundy, Andre, the one he was most scared of was King Kong Bundy because Bundy was so strong and Bundy didn't know how to pull his shots. And I remember Hulk telling me that when Bundy kicked you or hit you, he really kicked through you or hit through you. And Bundy could actually do damage to you in part of me inside the ring. Um, as for the current crop, you know, my son was 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 afraid of, but really enjoyed as his favorite. It was weird. He was afraid of this guy, but was also his favorite, the, the fiend, Bray Wyatt. He hmm. loved the fiend, but he was terrified by him at the same time. Uh, he, he loved uh, uh, the, the demon as well, who we haven't seen make an appearance for a while, um, but he was afraid of him at the same time. Um, my son got a big buzz because I'm, I'm friends with Goldberg when last year I got a call from Bill saying hello and I put my son on the phone and, you know, he's he's still on a high after having spoken to Goldberg on the phone. So it's just I still love, John, that wrestling is still the stuff that can spark and fire kids' imaginations like it did mine when I was a 10-year-old. That is awesome. And obviously The Voice Versus, which is just an awesome uh, awesome interview series you did back for Access TV. Interviewing Hulk was awesome. And you mentioned Bundy. Actually, the, basically the last year, a little bit more of his life, I was actually his behind-the-scenes manager. He lives not that far from me, so I would drive him to shows. We'd book him on autograph signings. Such a nice, funny, sarcastic, obviously massive man. But, man, he was such a wise-ass. Like, I just couldn't believe it. But back in the day, he hated his guts. I'm like, you know, Hogan's got to beat him in the cage. Hogan, you know what I mean, all this other stuff. He absolutely hated his guts oh, back he, then. But he's such a nice guy. Or was such a nice cool. guy. That's pretty cool. And I've heard those sort of stories that Bundy outside of the, you know, outside the ring was just the nicest, gentlest giant to hang out with and actually very, you know, very smart man as well. And it was a shame. I thought that Bundy never got a bigger push. Um, I would have liked to see the strap on him at some stage, him with, with Heenan, you know, when I talked about Bundy mania, Bundy mania is going to run wild. Hulkamania is dead. I love those days. And I thought Bundy was such a, a good big guy. Uh, for that time and uh you know it's a shame he's gone now but uh many a great scary memory of, of bundy back in the day isn't it funny like the heels the bad guys they're usually the nice guys like in real life <laughs> and sometimes the the baby isn't faces it? aren't it's funny yeah yeah you know I, again i heard the same thing about so many of, of the, the heels being just the friendliest guys outside the ring but maybe that's maybe that's the reason why they made such good heels you know, because they are such nice guys in you know, real life, let's say non-kayfabe, they're, they're nice guys, that they wanted that other side of their personality they could never have to, to, to be their extroverted side, their kayfabe side, their, their alter ego. You know, so they get the best of both worlds. They get to play the bad, mean guy that is not a part of their true personality, but they get to shake that off and, and be them real, their real selves you know, in, in the real world. And I think that's quite beautiful that they could split between those two. Whereas it'd be much harder if you're a, a nice guy and you're a heel, which I assume someone like, uh, sorry, if you're a nice guy and you're a baby face, which I assume someone like Dwayne Johnson or John Cena is um, because you're always just being a nice guy and you don't have that duality that you can, you can split back and forth between. Yeah. 
Definitely. And I, I love that you had uh, Hogan, obviously, love the Hulkster, who was awesome in, in real life, too. I mean, people say not, but I've met him a few times, had some dealings with him. Such a nice guy. But what was he like interviewing on The Voice versus? Because that is one of the ones that stuck out to me. I mean, you interviewed so many awesome guys, but him and Austin, and I mean, those are guys that stick out to me. Oh, Hogan was awesome, man. For me to be in front of my one of my childhood heroes was huge. And from the moment we met, he was just a nice, nice guy and very open and didn't hold anything back whatsoever. I mean, we talked about everything, man, even a subject like blading. I mean, so few wrestlers are open to talking legitimately about blading, but Hogan had no qualms in, in telling me where he hit his razor blade and how he, how he cut himself, pardon me, etc. Um, we spent a lot of time that day at his house in in Florida at the time. Um, it was there was also a little sadness about it as well. I mean, you know, when I was young, Hogan was immortal. He was larger than life. He was six foot eight, three hundred and thirty pounds of of just bronzed muscularity, Herculean. And to see him a little bent over, to see him struggling to pick up a water bottle because he's got no feeling in his in his hands anymore, to see him struggling to walk a little bit because of the injuries he's taken over the years. Um, it's, it's, it's a little, a little sad to see that your, your, your hero, your childhood hero is actually mortal, but I'll always be thankful to Hulk because he gave me a, a day in my life that I'll never forget. And, and a wonderful interview. And the same with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, you mentioned before, I mean, Stone Cold and I still stay in touch. Uh, Steve rang me just a few weeks ago, just to check up and, how I was doing, given the, the situation with the, the COVID lockdowns in Australia getting pretty tight. And, um, you know, uh, he'll ring me now and then and we'll, we'll chew the fat and he'll talk about his Broken Skull Ranch interviews and about his guests, etc. And you wouldn't find a nicer, more humble, down-to-earth guy than, than Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's probably asking you for some advice too, right, for, for doing his interviews. Yeah, he did actually. And he, he does. He still does. Um Another thing, I think the reason why Stone Cold has been so successful, he's a guy that could ring David Letterman. You know, he could ring Jay Leno and say, hey, how do I I get the best out of my guests on my show? How do I interview them? But he rang me, you know, and he's like, Michael, I'm telling you, your interview with me is still the best interview I've ever done. Uh, How did you do it? How did you get that out of me? And I was very, I've always been very honest with him and very forthright and told him what I think he does well and what I think he doesn't do well. And he took that advice and he went away and worked on it and continues to improve and do some stunning part of the pun interviews for his broken skull ranch sessions on WWE network. And just the fact that he can, you know, ring someone like me and ask for advice and humble himself to do that, I think is, is indicative of why he has been so successful. I mean, nobody works harder than Steve Austin. I love that coming to you for advice. What did you tell him? Like not to go behind the curtain too much, but what did, what kind of advice did you give him? Maybe vague. You could, you could break it down. Yeah. Uh, it's just, there's going to be a certain chemistry between an interviewer and an interviewee. And so I think I was talking about developing that chemistry and also developing, you know, questions and knowing how to pull a, a subject back on track when they go off on too much of a tangent and about being in control with your interviews. You know, just uh, it's advice that I give to a lot of people who are asking me for advice on interviewing. It's like, well, you're in charge of the interview. Never, never forget that you're, you're it's your show. You're in charge and keep it on the topics you want to keep it on. And, you know, always 
make sure that you are listening to someone you're interviewing. Don't be thinking ahead of your next question or next two or three questions. Um, make sure you're listening because you never know if they'll drop a nugget in there that you are not prepared for in your questions that may take you on a tangent that will be a hundred times better than anything you've got prepared. So it was stuff like that and uh, you know a whole lot of other um, very other detailed things that I won't go into. But um, you know, when I listened to Steve do his next few shows and I heard that he was using the advice, it made me very happy because again, the guy's commitment to improving himself is is a lesson to anybody that you know work hard and always be continually improving and don't rest on your laurels and his work ethic is insane and like i said that's why he's so 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 successful i just love that he's going to you for the advice that is that's really cool and obviously great sound advice i'm going to take that into my own advice too and listen to that for sure sorry about that uh just taking a drink um as far as some of the other guests Maybe the most impressive to me, just because he's my favorite fighter of all time, but just the myth of him and, and the lore of him, Fedor Emelianenko. That's an awesome one. That was an interesting one. Fedor was in um, Canada doing some seminars, and uh, I happened to find out where and and uh, when, and man, I can't even remember the process, but we, we got him, which was amazing in itself. The fact that Fedor said... He'd sit down and do a, a one-hour TV interview. I mean, <laughs> it's fatal, man. The guy really only speaks three words at a press conference. His interviews last for one minute, and that's a long interview. So to ask him to sit down for an hour, tele television interview for an hour, and he did it, John. I had him there for more than an hour. We cut it. We cut it down to an hour for television. I must have sat with Fatal for more than an hour and a half that day, and he answered everything in depth. And his answers were superb, and he really got into it. And he laughed, which is the first time I'd ever seen Fatal laugh and smile. And being in the presence of a great man like that, I mean, man, you're talking about one of the greats of all time. Uh, just like you said, the myth, the aura of the man just precedes him wherever he goes. And to have done that and sat there with him for that long and hugged him afterwards and shook his hand and joked around with him is a very special memory I will never forget you think about it just it just in life wrestling too you can kind of say there's guys that t like shit talk or they you know they basically can drum up a fight with a lot of words and get over and then you, you see it but he was so unique it's like just the aura of him yes obviously the un long undefeated streak to destroying everybody being the top heavyweight in the world when pride was number one and, and ufc was a distant two and just dominating and beating all the best fighters but the other thing is like, okay, this guy doesn't talk. He puts his head down. He doesn't look the other guy eye to eye. <laughs> you know, it's like all this stuff that you would say, like, okay, this guy doesn't. He's not going to be a star. You know what I mean? Like everything points to that direction if you're writing it on paper. But then when you see him, like the charisma, uh, he's so humble. But then he's a monster. Uh, he takes Coleman's ground and pound like to a, a whole new level. I mean, he's just one of those weird guys that if you were writing on paper, like not a star. And then you watch him, it's like, okay, this guy's a star without even knowing English, without even speaking, yeah. he's a star. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, we had to go, we had to use a, a live interpreter interpreter on set who was interpreting my questions to him, then his questions back to me, uh, which is very difficult in itself because you've got to keep Fatal interested enough. And there's a lot of sitting there not saying anything while the interpreter is interpreting, interpret, interpreting stuff. So, 
you've got to keep his interest. And as a, as a interviewer, it was very, very challenging interview for me to keep him there for that long. But, uh, you know, I, I consider it a victory that I did. And that interview is, is one of my, one of my favorites. That's so cool. That's like a, to me, like, okay, Hogan's awesome. Austin's awesome. But like, whoa, Fedor, like how the hell, are you, you know, how did that happen? That's insane. Like, that's crazy. That That's a great one. Um, he's definitely to me, the, obviously the heavyweight goat, but the goat anyway. And, you know, he's obviously a little at his prime fighting right now, but he's still great. Oh man, he's, he's still awesome. And I know he's fighting again and I'm, I'm amongst those that probably think he should have hung up the towel, but who are we to, to give him any advice? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I hope that nothing destroys his legacy and uh, he's always been a favorite to watch and, um, many a happy memory and for, for, he, he will always be the face of pride for so many people in that glorious era of mixed martial arts back at the, the, the turn of the century. No doubt about it. Um, and for people who don't know, pride was definitely the, the number one organization by far. They had all the best fighters. The UFC had some great ones, but even when Chuck Liddell goes over to pride, he gets KO'd by rampage Anderson Silva before he gets in UFC. He's in pride. He's having a lot of issues with uh, the couple of Japanese guys. Um, it's just, it's like, wow, it's like pride was just amazing. And, and I feel like hopefully it's not forgotten and hopefully his legacy holds up and hopefully Pride's legacy holds up because I know about you. I always thought pride was the best. Oh, Pride was amazing. It was a, for its time. It was incredible. The the ratings, the crowd, the fights, the way they build storylines. It was it was phenomenal. I never got to commentate it because at the same time I was commentating uh, Dynamite and, and K1. But uh, I was a huge fan, and I still go back and watch some of the old Pride um, stuff online. And I was one of those guys who used to buy the old videos, the VHS cassette tapes, and have the, the Pride collection of, of cassette tapes back in the day. And you know that. It's like we were talking about pro wrestling before for, for a lot of people who can list their, their pro wrestling heroes when they were growing up and those that sparked their imagination. Um, for a lot of people who are now aged in their you know, 30s and 40s, um, Pride was the day, you know, the time that was igniting their martial arts imagination. Yeah, without a doubt. It just, you just think back of that roster, you're like, oh my goodness. Like, Anderson Silva is there, but he almost gets cut after he loses the Ryo Chone. It's like, okay, he didn't quite make it, but you have Fedor, Dan Henderson, Vanderlei Silva, possibly the greatest of all, of all time, Sakuraba. And there's so many awesome legends that were in Pride and went through there. And afterwards, you know, when they go to UFC and stuff, maybe they're a little bit out of their prime or they had so many wars in Pride. Maybe people don't remember it, but I would go back and watch all the Pride stuff, like you said, like the DVDs and the tapes and stuff, because you can't forget those awesome fights and that, how legendary some of them were. They really were. And, you know, seeing Sakuraba go through the Gracie family and what he did there and the way they built that up, it was just, uh, man, it's very nostalgic, you know, nostalgic time of a, a mixed martial arts fan's life, I think. It's funny when Dream comes along and obviously you're, you're doing the, the Dream stuff. It's like they tried to resurrect the Pride a little bit. It kind of worked you know, for a certain point and And obviously that... Um, but do you think that it's one of those things that you can't recreate the magic of pride? No, you can't. I mean, you can't recreate pride. You can't recreate dynamite. You can't recreate K1 or K1 Max. Those products had their own character. They had their own aura. They had their own, uh, you know, something special about them, um, something you can't quite put your finger on that you can't replicate. 
Um, you know, there are a lot of imitators, but no one will ever do it the same. And uh, yeah, you, you're right. You, you'll never find another Pride or another K1. And sure, you know, organizations may pop up that even use those names in the future, but they'll never be the same as those companies were during their heyday. Um, it's just like you can't recreate the, the WWF era anymore. You know, you can't recreate WCW Nitro anymore. AEW is doing a fantastic job. And again, you've got a, a genuine competitor to WWE, which is great to see for us wrestling fans. But you'll never have another Monday Night Wars quite the way you did, you know, Nitro versus Raw. It's just not going to happen again to that extent. So, you know, um, time moves on and uh, it had its time and it was a beautiful time. I love that when you're there, you know, you get your guys, you know what I mean? Like, I know like Maro and, and Quadros, you could tell like they get pumped for certain guys, but you had your guys. I always felt like Alistair Overeem or the Reem, it was your favorite. And it kind of made him one of my favorites too. Uh, obviously he, you know, he was eating that horse meat at that point. He was getting really, he looked literally almost bigger than the incredible Hulk, but I loved it. Like the Reem, good night, Irene, which is the, one of the greatest catchphrases of all time. Good night, Irene, the Reem, you know, I just love that stuff. It, it was funny though, because Alistair originally started off not being a favorite of mine, because remember that we had a whole invasion angle at K1. We did our own invasion angle where, where Alistair Overham was a mixed martial artist coming to K1 to try and beat up the, the K1 kickboxers. And, you know, he did a very good job of it. He broke the ribs of Peter Ertz and he was beating all the guys. And, you know, he was this guy come to invade us, leading to that peak when Bada Hari beat him in the, in the K1 Grand Prix. And they, they, they went to a shot of me and Kogan and Ray Sefo cheering in the commentary position, you know, it became very famous since then. And so we actually had him built up as the bad guy. And the thing about Alistair was I didn't give him any love at the start, but he got it. You know, he understood what I was trying to do. Uh, I remember being at breakfast uh, the day after that Grand Prix when he got knocked out by Barda. And he was at the table across from me by himself, and I was by my by myself. We 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 hadn't really formally met Alistair and I. We'd met at press conferences, but never really you know met one on one. He turned to me and he's like, "Ah, you're the commentator." And I'm like, "Oh, geez, I'm gonna get beaten up by Alistair over him in the breakfast area. This is not good." But you know, he he shook my hand. And he goes, "I love your commentary." And I'm like, oh, I've just been building this guy up as the bad guy, as the heel to my, my baby face, Bada Hari. And here he is shaking my hand at breakfast. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy that, John, when guys get it. You know, they understand that there's an, a marketing angle to all this stuff. There's characters you've got to build. You've got to be, you've got to emotionally attract fans, you know, emotionally invest them into the content. And it worked so well because we did blockbuster ratings on, on K1 through the Butter Hurry versus Alistair Overeem, you know, rivalry. And then after that, uh, you know, I switched it up a little and Alistair became the good guy, the, the champion of K1. And uh, it was a, sort of a nice from heel to babyface turn, I guess you could say. And Butter Hurry actually turned out to be the heel for sure uh, in, in that, I think. Oh, no doubt, no doubt about it. And that was some of the most fun times in my commentary career was, you know, Barter started off also, though, as a heel with, with, with me and most people. I mean, when Barter was 20 years old, he knocked out Stefan Lecco, um, 2005, with one of the greatest knockouts ever. And I remember being on the, 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 the bus back to the hotel with the fighters afterwards. And um, Barter was 20 years old and Ray Sefo was on the bus, Ernesto Hoost was on the bus, Labana was on the bus, Ertz was on the bus, and here's Butter Hurry at the back of the bus saying, hey, hey, 
Ray, Ray Seppo, how old are you? Ah, too old. I'm going to knock you out. Hey, Peter Ertz, how old are you? Ah, old man, I'm going to knock you out. Ernesto Hoos, how old are you? Eh, I'm 20 years old. I'm going to knock you out. That's what he was like. He was a cocky young thing, man. So when he got knocked out and his jaw broken by Peter Graham in Auckland in that great K1 fight, I mean, I was I was happy that he got shut up, you know. Um, but again, it turned him into a baby face that became a hugely adored fighter. And Butter and I became great mates and we're still great mates. And, you know, we, we traveled the world together doing a little bit of a co-sell Ali thing wherever we went. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of the great storylines we developed that really built his career that still to this day, uh, you know, 10, 12, 15 years later, I get so many people messaging me about Bada, uh, you know, asking me to still commentate his fights, etc., and reminiscing about those old fights. And that makes me very happy. I feel like with him too, it's like now you almost want to root for the comeback, but he's lost four out of five, struggling a bit. Injuries obviously play a role. His, his, obviously his history, his, um, I guess you could say, um, police record or whatever you want to say, maybe catching up to him. I mean, he seems like he's he's lost a step big time. I mean, he's become the guy that he was making fun of on the bus. You know what I mean? He's become the older guy. So it, it's it's a bit harder when you get in that spot. It's difficult. Yeah, you know, it's hard to watch as well because I've always been so close to Bada and I don't want to see him get hurt and, and get beaten. And, you know, he was doing well in his last fight before he, you know, before he got beaten. Um it's hard to watch, and uh, I hope he can rally and, and come back. But most of all, I hope he's just happy and found peace within himself. He's always been a very volatile character, um, always been great, you know, been great with me. And he's one of those guys that if you get to know him and you're in that inner circle of Bada, uh, you know, he, he's the best guy to be around. But don't rub him the wrong way, or uh, <laughs> man, those those devil eyes come out. <laughs> it's funny, like. With us talking about like Reem and obviously Bada Hari too, but when you first heard you announcing, it's like, man, it had like the Gus Johnson thing. It's like, I don't know what it is about this guy, the voice, but I love this guy, his enthusiasm. He obviously loves what he's doing. He loves what he's calling. How did you kind of get your announcing style? And are you like thinking to yourself, this enthusiasm is, is so infectious. I, I, you know, I can't hold it in. I, I, I got to let it out. Pretty much. I mean, I, I, it's just it's just me when I get excited about things. Um, my wife will tell you if I get excited about something, I go full bore, you know, full bore on it. Um, so it just from the start of my commentary career, I was always very excited to be there, to be doing that job, to be talking about something I enjoyed watching. And, you know, I still am. It's just it's just that energy. Um, I've been commentating fight sports since 1994. So I've been around doing it for longer than, than most people. And it's just always been the same way. Um, not the same commentary, because if you don't improve, then, you know, you don't get anywhere in life. But that 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 um, that energy has always certainly been there. I just think I've refined it a lot more, which you have to as you go along. But I, I still get excited even now, um, you know, going to a one championship event and commentating mixed martial arts or kickboxing or Muay Thai, whatever it may be. I get excited like a giddy kid unwrapping a present on Christmas morning under the tree. It's just who I am. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm commentating sports that suit that excitability. Um, sometimes I get the chance over the years to, you know, live out some childhood dreams, like when I commentated Ultima Lucha, uh, Lucha Underground. Yes. And yep. did that, that was, you know, doing that on, on primetime American television on our Ray Network, which was on back then. 
was just a highlight of my career and I'll never forget it and gave me a chance to live out my childhood fantasy of finally commentating a, you know, a very awesome, cool wrestling show on primetime TV. That is awesome that you were able to do that. That was really cool. I was like a shocker. Like, wow, they got Michael Chavello. Like, that's awesome. Because to me, it's like you can, even if let's say you're not interested in the product, they're like, oh, well, I'll check out Lucha Underground. You, to me, would bring over people just because you're so enthusiastic. Like, wow, this guy's loving it. I'm going to start loving it. I, I just feel like the energy, like you said, energy is perfect for the kind of getting the fans on your side and like getting them invested into what you're invested in. How can you not burn? There's so many commentators that dial it in, John. And to me, I, I just, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know how you can dial in a commentary. Um, you know, if you're not enthused, your audience is not going to be enthused. And I'm not saying to get carried away with just unbridled enthusiasm. You've also got to be researched and, and knowledgeable and know what you're talking about as well and be able to present that in a, in, in a good fashion. But um, if you're not excited if it doesn't excite you to go and commentate live sport, don't do the job, man, because, you know, we don't want someone to just dial it in on our, on our TV or our radio. It's, it's, it just doesn't show any enthusiasm. If you're not enthused, I'm not enthused. Why should I watch this if you're not excited? You're the guy there at the event. You're at the stadium. You know, you're at the ballpark watching it. If you're not excited, what, what's, what's to invest me in it? Where do you come up with the catchphrases? Because obviously, Goodnight Irene is the best, one of my favorite ones. I always say Mauro Ranallo's Mamma Mia and your Goodnight Irene are like the two best. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Goodnight Irene actually comes from my love of professional wrestling. Uh, back when I was young, loving professional wrestling, loving a lot of different wrestlers. One of them was a guy called Adorable Adrian Adonis. Adrian had a finishing move, a sleeper hold that was called the Goodnight Irene. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing Gorilla Monsoon, you know, say, oh, Adrian's got him. You know, is he going to put on the Goodnight Irene? And it stuck with me, my young mind. When I started commentating when I was 15 or 16 years old doing track and field, I called a, a race and blurted out Goodnight Irene and I don't know why or how. And when I commentated soccer after that on radio, I blurted out Goodnight Irene. And when I started commentating fight sports as a 20-year-old, I blurted out Goodnight Irene. And that sort of just stuck. But it definitely comes from my love of professional wrestling, my love of my commentary hero, Gorilla Monsoon, and uh, also my um, adoration of adorable Adrian Adonis and his finishing move. To me, I love the wrestling tie-ins because I know maybe only me and you might, might get this reference, but... Minowa Man, legend, one of my favorites. You got me so into him. He'll come out with the red tights, and you're like, very reminiscent of Nikolai Volkov. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah, I was like, know, that is so great. I thought I always, I always tried to attach, and still do sometimes. Pro wrestling. I look, I have to say, Dream and Dynamite and K1 gave me the scope to do that. I could tie a lot of pro wrestling into it because a lot of the guys who were watching at the time were the same age as me and had also grown up on that pro wrestling, the Federation days, the Federation years. So I could tie that in. And that was just like, uh, you know, neuro programming your mind to tie someone in with maybe one of your boyhood wrestling heroes. And if you can do that and make that link in someone's subconscious, it attracts them to the, to the fighter even more. So, you know, with middle man, the red trunks and, and, you know, a lot of those guys that I'd try to put a professional wrestling spin on 
just to make that little neuro connection subconsciously that you were almost watching something that was tapping into that primal, pure, joyous entertainment you used to find from pro wrestling when you were a kid. And Minimal Man is like the ultimate, to me, babyface underdog. He comes out and does like drop kicks sometimes, like legit straight drop kicks in his fight. It's nuts. And he's always the underdog for the most part. I mean, he's literally, I mean, he's fighting Zulazino. He's fighting Giant Silva, somehow beating him. He's fighting Butterbean. I mean, he is the ultimate underdog babyface. And I love that. I think it was the Azumi fight when he lost. You're like, oh, no, he something was in his eye. Or you were kind of <laughs> making an excuse for like how, how the legend yeah. lost. But he's always kind of that underdog. And it's funny, like, man, he just doesn't care. He will fight anybody. What a nut. And that was a beautiful thing. You could do that and make characters out of these guys back then. And, um, you know, like I said, K1 and Dream Dynamite gave me the the liberty to do that. They took the handcuffs off and said, go for it. And, you know, I wore a pair of red Speedos on on TV at Dynamite one year. And um, we could do all that sort of stuff. We could make crazy bets on the air and put lipstick and wigs on each other and that sort of thing. It was a, it was a fun time and people gravitated towards it. And you know, we, we took the sport seriously, but we didn't take it totally seriously that it, you know, it became stale at all. There was, even if it was a boring fight, you knew the commentary was going to be fun. And when it was a fun fight, the commentary hopefully just made it a lot more entertaining and exciting and on the edge of your seat. Me and my buddy, because sometimes he would record him and when we'd watch it back or something, he'd be like, Oh man, I can't wait to hear what he says about minimal man. And it's like, we're like really like dissecting your commentary just because it was so good and so different than some other stuff you might hear. You know, some guys, maybe UFC or something, maybe take it not so seriously, but they'll kind of present it from a different angle. We just love the way you were kind of presenting, even like Sengoku was like, um, uh, Misaki against Santiago. It's like this epic wars, like flare steamboat or something like the way you were presenting it. We just love your style. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, you know, that makes me happy to hear that. And I think a lot of people will, will like that. And, it's the reason why we were able to make big stars of these guys that America had never heard of. I mean, America had never really heard of Bada Hari. America had never heard of Masaki, never heard of Minoa um, um, Man and a lot of these guys. So that gave us the ability to, to, to form these characters and enter into the American imagination, which at the time made it a really big success for, for HDNet in particular or Access TV. Yeah, obviously HDNet, Mark Cuban, um what started it and then they turned it into access TV, but I've heard that he saw you and, and, and love what he saw from you. Did you always have a relationship with Cuban just because of him? Basically you're like the voice of HD TV and access TV, HD next, excuse me, and access TV. You know, as the story goes, I was commentating a K1 Grand Prix in 2008. And I think that was the first year that the GP was broadcast live to the U S on HD net. So it would have been on at four or five in the morning and Cuban was watching it and heard me make a comment about Semi Schult that he had less personality than a head of lettuce. And as the story <laughs> goes, he rang Andrew Simon, who was the yeah, who was the CEO of Access TV or HDNet, and said, "Sign this, sign this crazy Aussie." And so I got a call up from Andrew and said that uh, we want to sign you on HDNet and um, maybe an offer. And I took it and uh, relocated to the US. And uh, you know, Mark and I. Uh, we, we heard from Mark now and then, and uh, obviously you know, Mark Cuban's a very busy man, but uh, he used to watch all the shows 
and uh, enjoy them. And we'd always get good feedback from him and he used to enjoy it. So we always had a good relationship. And I think he did with all the guys at, at HDNet. You know, for Mark, it was a, a fun thing to add to his many businesses that he owned was to have a broadcaster like HDNet that could broadcast this sport of MMA, not be hooked or tied in with the UFC at all and do it with our own style. And what I was able to bring to HDNet was a very original style of commentary um, that, you know, I think for, for nine, nine, 10 years, whatever it was, um, gave them some, some great ratings. Man, just to think about like that network, like you never really heard of it before to me anyway, wasn't familiar with it. Then ring of honors on there. And then, you know, they're starting to really cover some fights, HGNF fights, you get all that kind of stuff. You're on there. I feel like you are the face and, and the voice of there. And then the voice versus very much kind of tied in to that channel. Just, I think of the exposure of the channel, you helped immensely. I think so. And it was sad that after I left, um, you know, within 18 months or so, it was gone, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was sad when I heard that they were finishing up and, uh, all my old colleagues like Bass and Kenny Rice and Pat Militich, Ron Kruk, a uh, great, great team were, you know, were finished up. It was very sad. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess, that we couldn't go on forever and I couldn't go on forever over there. And uh, that's life. But uh, it, it was sad when I heard that it was wrapping up and, you know, it wasn't that long after I left, which was made me even a little sadder. It's funny you mentioned Boss. I was talking to him the other night. We're doing something um, with him re recording wise. And I said, I was like, oh, something, you know, technical difficulties or something happened before I go up. I go, you're, you're going to have to take over and like kind of be the host. And, and he's mentioned you and Kenny Rice and stuff, who obviously he's mentioned in the book too. But um, he was like, no, I can't do with those guys. So I was like, no, come on. I go, you're so smooth. You're going to have to take over. And he was laughing. But I, th I thought that was great that he mentioned you and Kenny. And it's like, I can't do what they do. He's like, they, they carry me. <laughs> Bus is great, man. You know, I, I got the co chance to commentate with him a few times. Um, the, the first time was a strike force prelims. And I think it was the night that Fatal lost to Verdum. No, don't, um, don't, remind don't remind me. Don't remind me. No, I know, right? Sad memory. Um, it's like everyone know, remembers where they were, our parents, when JFK got assassinated. Well, everyone remembers where they were when Fatal lost for the first time. Um, that was the first time I commentated with Bass, and so many people wanted to hear us together for so long. And there was also a big question, like, you got two big personalities behind the microphone. Bass likes to take over. Chevallo likes to take over. Can Chevallo keep Bass reined in and get what he needs out of him? And, man, that commentary... I, I don't know if it's online anywhere, but it was the feedback we got from that uh, was just, it was one of the best commentary sessions of all time. And I worked the bus a few more times after that. And we had a great chemistry on air and uh, he's a great guy, man. I, I love bus. He's tremendous. Just a great, great bloke. Great to be around. What a presence, what a character and a real sweetheart too. I believe cause I have it somewhere. There was a very rare DVD that came out for some reason of that show and a couple other shows around that time period. I guess when Strike Force was you know, really trying to make a, a big push with obviously Sonny Fedor and a bunch of the other guys. But man, I remember watching it with my friend and his brother watching Fedor lose because we're pumping him up. Like, this guy's undefeated. Uh, he, you know, basically he's never lost. He's unbelievable. He, he just wipes these guys out. And then Verdum wins and literally does like 
a party for a year, basically. I mean, he parties around the stadium, but he took off. If you remember his next fight after that, he's overweight. He took, he literally took that win as like the biggest moment ever. It's like when the Giants beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. I mean, you beat the GOAT. You, you, you don't get much better than that. But I remember my, my friend's brother was like, wow, uh, that guy's really celebrating. He really must have pulled an upset. I can't believe he beat that guy because he didn't know much about MMA. And me and my buddy were just like sitting there like stunned <laughs> that he lost. We were like so pissed. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, I remember that night, you know, besides commentating it and just being there, which was historic in itself, I'd gotten tickets for my good mate Costas Mandalore, the actor, um, who you may remember off the Saw franchise, and Hulk McAlaney, the actor, and they were both there ringside, and we met up with each other afterwards, we were just like, what the hell just happened? You know, we're all just big Fatal fans, but um, it, was, it, was, it was great to be there because you're, you're a part of martial arts history. It's oh man, I hate thinking back. I know Verdum is great, and when you really look at it, he might be one of the goats too because he beat Cain Velasquez, who they were pumping up as being great. He beat Fedor, he beat Big Nog. I mean, he beat everybody that you say was great. And obviously, you know, he had some missteps against some other guys, and had some weird, weird fights against like Overeem and Stipe, where he just was totally out of character. But uh, looking back, Verdum, okay, you know, I, I'll give it to him. Good win, but I just won't watch that fight again. No, it's too sad, man. There's certain sad points in your life you just don't want to watch. And, you know, that's <laughs> that for me is one of them. I, I haven't gone back and watched it again. I just don't want to see Fatal get beaten. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it happens with a lot of sports. You don't want to go back and watch certain moments because you don't want to see a guy a guy get beaten. It's funny, too, but like even Anderson Silva, when he loses to Weidman and then he loses to him again, breaks his legs. Like, oh, man, it's like you're seeing like this huge legend all of a sudden that quickly. Boom, he's out of his prime. And they're like, oh, man, like. It was like, remember when, uh, remember in WCW when Goldberg finally got beaten because they tasered him with the cattle prod at Starcade, I think it was. I've never gone back and watched that again. I think that was the that was the whole time that I stopped watching WCW. It made me so sad that that's the way that they decided to stop the streak of Goldberg. And I was such a huge Goldberg fan, you know, still am. Um, yeah, it's just some things you can't go back and watch again. It's funny because I do a show with Kevin Sullivan. We talk about the behind the scenes. He obviously was the booker for WCW at that point. We were talking about the behind the scenes stuff, and he like vehemently hates it because he got overruled. He said that Nash, if we're going to have Nash beat him, it should be straight up. And they should have three matches. Goldberg wins the next one, and then they do the third. He's like, but he goes, do we even want Goldberg to lose at this point because he's on such a roll? And it was obviously a gigantic mistake because the week after that, they never end up winning the ratings ever again. It's just completely downhill from there but even he's pissed off he got overruled and creative control brother and all that other stuff with whatever you know bischoff wanted to do but he was he's even still pissed about it so he's he was the booker yeah i mean i, I i've read so much about that and the books about it and um you know the rise and fall of nitro and all that stuff and the shows and you know i was one of those people people turned off after that and it's it's a shame it's it's, it's sad you know that you think what could have been with the talent they had and the, the audience that they had for WCW back then, it was just, you know, unfortunately, um, some some very questionable and bad calls. Yeah, right after that, they go into a string of like, oh, the finger poke of doom, that there was a mistake, and switching the title back and forth every other month, it was not good. It was They got it went into a, a tailspin for sure after that, unfortunately. But, you know, there was two years there, two, three years that it was just, it was gold, man. It was Monday Night Gold. And I, I remember being WWE fan adamantly 
and telling my mates, nah, man, I'm not going to watch WCW. You've got older guys on there. And, you know, we've got this guy called The Rock and we've got The Undertaker. We've got Stone Cold Steve Austin. And we got, um, we still had Bret Hart at the time. We had Ken Shamrock. We had all these, you know, we had China. We had D-Generation X, all these guys. And they're like, nah, you've got to come over. You've got to watch this guy called Goldberg. Just watch Goldberg. I'm like, all right, I'll watch, I'll watch your bloody Goldberg. And <laughs> I was hooked. You know, that's all my mates and I were watching every Monday night, or not Monday night in Australia, it was Tuesday, gathering together as a, you know, just excitedly watching it. And that was what it was all about, you know, four best friends celebrating like little kids, reading the, the dirt sheets at the time that were, you know, hardly available on the embryonic internet and just, uh, you know, going along for the ride and enjoying it. I was a big, I mean, I like both. Obviously, I, I would go to a lot of WWF shows, too, as that's Survivor Series 96, SummerSlam 97, SummerSlam 98. I mean, I, I'm from New Jersey, and any show that was in the New Jersey, New York area, we would try to go. I was a huge fan, but I was such a big WCW, NWO guy. Man, I remember I was in high school, and we would wear the colors, you know, <laughs> the black and white. People were like, and we're in like a nice it's school, nice neighborhood and stuff, but people are like, what are these guys in a gang with NWO? And then they're like, oh my God, Hulk Hogan turned bad. And like, then they get into it. It's just great moments. Yeah. Great, great time. NWO was so cool. And it just was such a ratings boost, but they, I just think they did it too much. They did it to death. And when the NWO started just beating on everyone, it became a little stale. Um, that was just my thought, you know, it became, I loved NWO like everyone else, but when you just start beating down everyone and spray painting everyone and then everybody starts joining the NWO, like every week you had new guys joining the NWO. It's like, really? It should have just been a nice little small elite group that would come in every now and then and, and, and beat up on people and make some real rivalries. But it just expanded to, to too many people, I thought, at the end. Totally agree. Way too many guys. And if you're going to end it, Sting has got to be the guy to end it then and there. I know it, it continues on and Goldberg, then you have Goldberg end it, but they kind of didn't do that and they kind of were wishy-washy because there was, I guess, the cash cow with the NWO, but it was such a mistake. Sting, you built him up for a year. He's the most over guy on the roster. He's got to destroy Hogan. Like, oh, little things like that. I was like, oh, the NWO is just a little too dominant, like you said, and way too many members. And just you wonder now, looking back, you're like, how, how did they not know that? Who was, who was making these decisions, you know? You'd know better than I would, John, but um, it's it's frustrating even to, to look back now as a fan, even though I watched some of the old WCW Nitro on, on WWE Network, it's like, oh, really? Like, who was making some of these calls, some of these decisions? But uh, anyway, you know, they're nice memories that we that we still have of a, a, a period when, when our imaginations were re-sparked by professional wrestling again. Now, as we hit the wind down, head towards the finish, just kind of a couple quick hitters for you that I'm just really curious about. Who's the favorite like broadcast partner you work with? Like, obviously, Trig and Boss, you know, like all these guys, but who's who's the favorite? You know what? Jason Mayhem Miller. I only got to work with Mayhem a few times on Dynamite and King of the Cage for Mark Burnett. And uh, for all of his craziness and his issues in his personal life, Mayhem was such a good co-commentator. He had he was really like a, a mixture of Jesse the Body Ventura and Bobby the Brain Heenan in mixed martial arts. He had humor. He had knowledge. He had a great voice. He had tremendous personality. I thought he was just the bee's knees when it came to commentary. Man, I love that gimmick, too. Maybe it was real, but yeah, I always enjoyed him. Who's your favorite fighter or fighters? Hopefully Minimal Man or, or Sakuraba but, or Fedor? 
you know what, all three of those. But if you're going to say one overall, I mean, you know, stranded on a desert island, you've got to watch this one fighter's fights only. Uh, but a hurry. Who's your favorite wrestler? Of all time? Yes. Hard to go past Macho Man, Randy Savage. Uh, I want to say Goldberg, but because I'm friends with Bill, it's probably a little unfair, so I won't say Goldberg. Um, I'll, I'll say maybe Macho Man, Randy Savage. As a heel or as a babyface, I thought he was tremendous. It's funny, somebody a few weeks ago, they were saying, like, who's, like, the perfect wrestler? Like, if you were going to bottle, like, a wrestler, I always go Macho Man. They're like, really? I'm like, look, who's memorable? Who is an awesome wrestler in the ring? Who's an awesome wrestler cutting promo? The look, his voice. I was like, if you were going to create, a, like, a pro wrestler, like, the perfect wrestler, and that the Bret Hart says the Bret Hart scale, like, the guy has charisma, the guy can talk, and the guy can wrestle – He's like a 30 of 30 or whatever, 10 of 10 or whatever you want to say. Like, he's the perfect guy. To me, I was still like, man, if wrestler, like, you want to say, like, oh, who's a pro wrestler? You show him a picture of Macho Man. Yep, 100%. That was the epitome of, of, of that era, certainly, of pro wrestling. So, yeah, I'll, I'll go Macho Man. Besides one, who's, like, the favorite promotion you've ever worked for? Obviously, Dreams, Sengoku, uh, Invicta, oh, MFC, man, this, XFC. This, this, uh, this is this is an easy question. K1. There's no doubt about it. K1. That was my imagination come to life. And uh, I miss it, but K1. You're probably going to think I'm crazy. You know who my favorite K1 fighter was? And there's so much better ones than him. But Bob Sapp. <laughs> that, like, infusion of him be- somehow beating Ernesto Hoost and, like, dominating him. Yeah. It's like, wait, it was like, who, who is this monster? And obviously, you know, he... he could have well he was a good pro wrestler could have been even better he could have been this could have been that um he obviously didn't like to get hit too much but and and didn't train too much sam greco was talking to him not that long ago he was saying like man when he could train and focus he would be great because he's such a monster and he could touch you with a jab and knock you out but man i just love bob sap yeah bob bob's very intelligent guy too but uh you know he had his issues but um we had a lot of fun with bob a lot of fun back in the day and, of course, the real reason to hear the 100 Years of Sports Commentary, the commentator's book. Give us uh, one last big plug and push where everybody can get it, why everybody should want to read it, because it's awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, uh, you know, like I said, the book celebrates sports commentary, and it's got over 60 of the most epic sports moments in it, including professional wrestling. As I said, Mankind versus Undertaker is in there, and Jim Ross talks about his favorite um, wrestling commentator of all time. And no matter what sport you follow, I guarantee it is in there and you're going to get a different perspective about your favorite sports moments. And uh, everyone can go to uh, bookdepository.com, order it there at bookdepository.com. They've got free worldwide shipping. Grab a copy and I guarantee you're going to love it. And, uh, you know, thank you, mate. I, I appreciate coming on your show. It's it's been a long time in the making, and I'm, I'm glad to have sat here and reminisced so much with you about so many great moments uh, throughout wrestling and, and combat sports. It's been a treat. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much for all the time. This is awesome for me. I want you to get you on forever. 
arguably the greatest commentator of all time. I don't know if you would agree with that or not, because there's a hundred other ones on that on that list that are great. But to me, one of the all time greats. The voice. I actually, to me, to be honest, I stole the name versus. I do a John Pods versus series two, which is a separate kind of wacky interview series to do. But I stole that from you. So uh, you are the best. Thank you, John. I appreciate it, mate. And uh, big hello to all of your listeners. And thanks again for having me on, mate. Really love it. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother. The Moroccan bad boy could beat the sun in a staring contest. Shobanu could beat a statue at a staring contest. Little Hercules, more muscles than a seafood platter. He could make coffee nervous. These men do not like each other. It is ready to explode here. Back back on the kisser and again the rock cross. Masato with more crosses in the Vatican. He's got more combinations than a Sudoku puzzle. He's got more kick than a can-can dancer. He's got more punch than a high school prop. He's got more hooks than a tackle box. More rights than Amnesty International. More combinations than a McDonald's menu. He's had more kick than a chorus line. Well, I'll tell you what, they've thrown more bombs than the US Air Force in this fight. Left knee from Borgau in close has become as predictable as a Tara Reid nipple slip. Shinya Aoki, more cauliflower in those two shots at my local fruit market. Take nothing away from Mark Hunt. He is a nasty fighter. He is a nasty person. He'd send a get well letter to a hypochondriac, that's for sure. Left hand hit him on the humorous bone, but there was nothing funny about it. There are gobs of blood all over this ring. The Red Cross had had an absolute field day here. The lead leg of Vada Hari has taken more strikes than a bowling alley. Mark Hunt taking more knocks than a front door thus far. Bulacow is taking more shots than an alcoholic. He's taken more hits than a Cheech and Chong movie. Bua Gao has taken more punishment than a bondage parlor. Alistair's going to tee off on him like a golf course. Tita all over him like a fat kid on a cupcake. Sambo opens up like a house of fire. Oh, it's a slugfest. It is a slugfest. Shit just got real here in the max. The mayor of Munchkin Town has turned it off here in the first. This is a nasty little Oh, the big kibosh! Oh, the big kibosh! The left hand, the high there! It's recorded! Oh, the big kibosh! Beautiful counterfeit, man!